Well, if you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word, uh, we're in 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. This is an important text in the life of our church and really in the life of any church. Uh, this is where our name comes from, uh, and it, it seems like a very appropriate text uh, for Easter Sunday. So hear God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before this word and under this word this morning. Lord, we ask that your spirit would use it, would speak to each one of us deep in our hearts and in our spirits. Lord, that your spirit would, would fill me this morning to proclaim your truth with clarity. And Lord, that in this, Lord, we all have great need of hope. And we see that our hope has been given to us through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Would you make that more and more real and more and more known to each of us this morning? Whether we've known you for years or even today, we just come to know you. Lord, be at work in our hearts and in our lives. Bring life from death for your glory and for our good and joy. Amen. Spring. It's a season that's a bit unpredictable. We all know that because we all live in Ohio. It's cold, then it's warm, then it's hot, then it's cold, then it's hot again, then it rains, then maybe it's a thunderstorm and maybe even snow in the midst of that and frost. We all had the frost warning last night. But then also when you wake up in the morning and you see this dazzlingly green grass and the sunshine and the dew the beautiful blooms on trees and flowers, fresh air, sunshine, turning off your heat, opening the windows. In some ways, spring is the season of hope. There's a poem by Gerald Manley Hopkins titled Spring, and I think it speaks to what many of us feel around this time of year. He writes, nothing is so beautiful as spring. When weeds and wheels shoot long and lovely and lush, thrushes' eggs look little low heavens and thrush. Through the echoing timber does so rinse and ring, the ear it strikes like lightnings to hear him sing. The glassy pear tree leaves and blooms, they brush. The descending blue, that blue is all in a rush. With richness the racing lambs too have fair their fling. What is all this juice and all this joy? A strain of the earth's sweet bean in the beginning, in Eden garden. Have, get, before it cloy, before it cloud, Christ, Lord, and sour with sinning, innocent mind, and mayday, and girl, and boy, most, O mage child, thy choice, and worthy, the winning. Now, if you're like me, most of you didn't catch most of what I said in that poem, because... 
you're not big poetry people, but a few things in this. He starts off with, nothing is so beautiful as spring. And then he describes that beauty, the vibrant nature in it all, using images that we can picture not only in our mind's eye, but we can see it outside even now. Singing of birds, the eggs and the nests, the blooms, animals frolicking. And then you reach the second stanza where he writes, what is all this juice and all this joy? You know, what does it all signify? What, what does all this tell us? And Hopkins points back to the beginning, to Eden's garden, and the echoes of it we see in spring before, he says, the cloud and sin soured it. And though at this point, I think Hopkins' theology is a little bit unsure at this point, he calls for Christ to save the innocent. That's not possible. Christ doesn't save the innocent because there are no innocents. The need for Christ is very real. That is true, very true in his poem because Christ is the Savior, but he's the Savior of sinners. And that's why we have hope. It's because Christ restores us to Eden's garden eventually. It's not a hope in our innocence. That's a false hope. But it's in Christ who saves sinners by giving to us life. So as we come together this morning, we do so to celebrate. As we do, as I've said, every Sunday when we gather, we celebrate the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and, and the promised return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, I desire to, to draw our hearts toward the hope that we have because of the work of Christ, in particular, His resurrection. As we look at this text in 1 Peter, we're going to see two things, that God gives us our hope and God preserves our hope. God gives our hope and God preserves our hope. And I pray that we would grasp and hold on to that hope that the Lord has graciously given to His people. It's a beautiful hope. It's a hope that transforms. It's, it transforms. It's a hope that gives life. It's a hope that can truly change everything about everything we go through while in this life. But there is that challenge to daily, moment by moment, hold on to and focus on our proper hope. Now, as we pick up these verses, we picked up in verse 3. And this is a letter written by Peter. He's writing to those who are throughout Asia Minor, what is present-day Turkey, and he calls them elect exiles. They're sojourners. They're sojourners in the world. That's what believers are. This broken and sinful world is not our true home. The heart of the believer looks to a better home, a, a true homeland, as Hebrews 11 talks about. And part of Peter's aim in this very letter is to, to lift his reader's eyes above this world so that they can stand strong in, in all the battles, spiritual and real, that they will inevitably face in life. So after Peter's greeting, what we come to is Peter turns to bless God. And as we will see, that blessing is brought about because of some wonderful soul-strengthening benefits. They are truths that, as one commentator wrote, when their value appears to us, all other things will be deemed worthless. 
especially when we consider what Christ and His blessings are, for everything without Him is but dross. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the implication in that, in that blessing is that the reason the Father is being praised is in relation to Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This has something to do with Jesus. And that's exactly where Peter directs our hearts. He writes, according to his, according to the Father's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to. According to. That is one of the sweetest and most comforting lines or phrases in all of Scripture, particularly when what it references is as astounding as what Peter writes, because according to means in conformity with, in line with, uh, along with. It means that what happened didn't just happen. It didn't just come about by chance. It was in keeping with something else. There are a few other places in Scripture that I want to draw out where this phrase or a very similar phrase is used to, to help us see the beauty of this phrase according to. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It was all set forth. Everything that happened was, was set forth by God. It was laid out in Scripture. It was not a fluke. It was not just a very cool morning that resuscitated Jesus on that Sunday, first Easter morning. This was according to Scripture. I was also reading earlier this week in Psalm 103, beautiful psalm that starts off, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. And then in verse 10, it says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So just consider that. Our sins, our iniquities, they are rightly dealt with in accordance with the nature of what they are. But yet the Lord does not deal with that way, that, that way with His children. He doesn't deal with us in punishment, but He deals with us in what Peter points us to, according to His great mercy. That's what makes that phrase, according to, so stunning and so beautiful. Mercy, in its simplest terms, this is God's work of kindness. It's God's work of kindness toward those who don't deserve it. It's, it's not getting what we deserve. We as sinners, as rebels against God day in and day out, we deserve justice and punishment for our constant transgression of His law, His rule, and His reign. But His children don't receive that. Rather, they receive mercy. According to his great mercy. Mercy is characteristic of God. Psalm 136 repeats over and over the refrain, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
You might be thinking, well, where's mercy in that? Well, the word that's used to translate steadfast love in the Greek Old Testament is the same word that's used to translate as mercy throughout the New Testament. So you could say, for his mercy endures forever. Psalm 86.5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love or abounding in mercy to all who call upon you. I think of Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 79. This is Zechariah's song. Zechariah, at the birth of John the Baptist, his son, says these words, starting in verse 76. And you, child, he's talking to John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Because, that's the purpose, it's the reason behind it, because of the tender mercy of our God. A mercy that's not only tender, but a mercy that's forever. Psalm 103, 17, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. From everlasting to everlasting. I think it could well be argued that mercy is the basis of our very Christian existence. Mercy is the basis of our very Christian existence, and that tells us something. Our existence as believers has nothing to do with our merits. Has nothing to do with your bank account, your grades, how nice you are. God was not coerced into doing what He did for His children. He did it rather because of who He is out of His great mercy. So, folks, what is it then that that great mercy has brought about? According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Born again. It's a term that fallen on hard times in the past years. People don't like to use it that much, but it's a beautiful term. Beautiful term. It reflects what Jesus taught in John 3 when he instructed Nicodemus that he must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Folks, in case you were wondering, being born is not your work. You did not cause yourself to be born. Just as salvation is not our work, it is the work of God. We, must, we have to have this, folks. We have to have God doing that work in us because we cannot do anything to affect our own spiritual change. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes us as dead in our trespasses and sins, and by nature, children of wrath. By nature, children of wrath. Not by nature, children of mercy, but by nature, children of wrath. So this work of being born again is the work of God. It is the work of His mercy. Now, from that being born again, there are two things that Peter points us to. The two things that we are born again to. And the first and overarching one is we're born again to a living hope. 
to a living hope. Folks, I'm going to state the obvious. It's not a dead hope. It is not dead. It is living. Dead hopes are based on futile things. And Scripture says throughout that those without God in this world have no hope. They have a dead hope. Ephesians 2 and 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, how do we see this today? Folks, we all know hopes probably that we have we have invested in that have been futile. But think about hope in material possessions, hope in our accomplishments, hope in politics and politicians, hope in finding your true self or speaking your own truth. Those things are ever-changing. Every single one of them. And in not one of them will you find fulfillment or a living hope. There's only one place where there's a living hope. Peter, Peter had false hopes. Peter had things that he had hoped in even as he walked with Jesus for years upon years. Ed Clowney wrote, when Jesus died on the cross... It was the end of all Peter's hopes. He knew only bitter sorrow for his own denials. Remember how he said, I'll never deny you, Lord. There's no way. The dawn could not bring hope. With the crowing of the cock, he heard the echo of his curses. The new sunny day for Peter didn't make anything any better. The only thing that could have changed Peter's life was what we see in the very next phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was the resurrection that proved that Jesus had, had, had real power over everything else that Peter had hoped in before. Jesus conquered sin and death and hell. The greatest enemy to be defeated was defeated. Jesus, our God, took on flesh so that he could fulfill the law on our behalf and then take the penalty that he did not deserve but that we do so that through faith in him we would have eternal and everlasting life. Peter wrote in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, he said, He, being Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. By his wounds, you've been healed, not only of your sin, but folks, by his wounds, our false hopes have been corrected. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, because of the great mercy of God that any sinner is born again, given new life and and a new and living hope in the midst of it. And this is where I want us to, to camp for a second here. This reality is vital for each of us to grasp. It's it is life changing. Gerhardus Voss wrote this about hope. He said, the essence of what Christians are consists in this. 
that they have a hope. They are begotten again for that. When they were made new creatures, it was that they might have a new hope. How many of us have ever felt hopeless? Some of you might feel hopeless right now. If you know Christ, you are born again to a living hope. It's definitive of who we are as believers. Peter's letter is filled with hope. Verse 13 in chapter 1, he exhorts his readers, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He knows that that our hopes tend to turn to the immediate and the transient in our lives. Will this happen? Will, Will they say this? Will I get this? All those type of things. That's where we place our hope. Will the Reds win a game? Anything like that. It's consistent. We keep putting it on the transients and on the temporal. But folks, that isn't a real or a living hope. He wants our hope placed in something greater, in something absolutely true. If we went down to, to verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul wrote, he said, no, or Peter wrote this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, and I think one of the applications of that is the futile hopes, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Listen, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter seems to over and over again say that because Christ was raised from the dead, that is for the purpose so that you could have real hope so that you could have a hope that's living, a hope that's placed in God. The raising of Christ from the dead was that we would have that hope in God. We were given life so that we could hope and hope rightly. And that right hope is one that exists no matter what our outlook on life is. Whatever we might think about the future, we have hope. Voss again wrote, the Christian is a man, according to Peter, who lives with his heavenly destiny ever in full view. Always looking, setting that hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed. His outlook is not bounded by the present life and the present world. He sees that which is and that which is to come in their true proportions and in their proper perspective. The center of gravity of his consciousness lies not in the present, but in the future. Hope, not possession, is that which gives tone and color to his life. Think about it. How is it that we see early on in this invasion in Ukraine, believers rejoicing and singing in a subway terminal to avoid bombs, and they're holding a church service? It's because their hope's not in possession. It's in the future. It's in that living hope. It's in Christ. 
And folks, that moves us toward the second thing that we are born again unto, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's an inheritance. Now, inheritance is, in some ways, it's a gift, but it's not a random gift, is it? It's not something you get at random. You receive an inheritance because of a prior relationship. One receives an inheritance because they are family. This is for those who are in Christ. That is, we are born again, born again into Christ, into that family, to an inheritance because we are part of that family. And this inheritance idea harkens back to the Old Testament. One wrote, God gave the land to Israel as an inheritance, and, and in the land He gave every tribe and family an inheritance with a lasting right of ownership. Now, they, while they wandered in the wilderness, they were sustained by that promise of their inheritance. So as Israel wandered around, they knew that they had this inheritance that was waiting for them. And like Israel in the wilderness, the New Testament people of God are aliens and pilgrims. They make their way through a world that is becoming more hostile, yet they are not wandering beggars cast off from their possessions. They hold a sure title to the inheritance God has given them. We have a greater inheritance than, than the people of Israel did in the land. In the Old Testament, the, the, the inheritance of the land was laid waste. Today, that land is disputed territory. It was defiled by invaders and their own rampant idolatry. And it faded away. Even the fruit and the, 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 the produce that it had would fade and spoil. It all faded away in the judgment of God. But the inheritance that it pointed to, that it was but a shadow of, the true inheritance of the new covenant is far superior. And I think that that contrast is drawn out just beautifully in the three adjectives that are given, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It has a distinct and hopeful character to it, so it's imperishable. It can never be destroyed. It's like spam. It will always be there, won't it? That's much better than spam. But it, it is truly imperishable. It can never be destroyed. It cannot be corrupted or die. It's undefiled. It's pure. It's unstained. It has not, nor will it spoil in any way. It is completely and utterly unpolluted by sin. Can you just imagine a world like that, unpolluted with sin? I can't imagine an hour like that. But here's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Like I said earlier, now's, now's when the color comes into view. I can see the green. I'm not looking through and seeing the house behind, you know, out, out there because there's no leaves on the branches. Now there's leaves and there's, there's grass. There's, there's vibrant colors. But come August, 
Unless you water your grass every single day, it will be brown, and it will crunch under your feet. And come fall and winter, there's no color left. But our inheritance never loses its pristine quality or character. It's eternal. It never gets old, and its brilliance never fades away. Folks, our inheritance can never be taken away. We can, on earth, we can lose family, we can lose homes and land, we can lose all of those things, and we will. Okay? You will. But the believer can never lose his or her inheritance. It is it is so beyond, so, so far beyond the reach of the events of this world. No matter how tumultuous they get, that's, that's why people can sing in a subway. This is absolutely stabilizing in our lives. And it's why we, who have a lot of the comforts of this world right now, have to really work to focus on our true hope. Because it's easy to find the comfort in that nap or the food in our fridge or a bank account. We have to work on it now so that when it's all taken away, it's not so utterly devastating. Because we know where our true hope lies. Folks, looking forward Looking forward to something else that is coming helps in the day to day. How many of you have ever looked forward to a vacation in the midst of a really stressful season? And just knowing that that vacation is on the calendar and marked, you're like, I can make it through. Our inheritance is way better than a vacation. because of the living hope and the inheritance we have, we can make it through. And not only can we make it through, I believe we can actually thrive in the midst of it. You know, our greatest gift can never be lost. It's kept for us by God. And not only is it kept for us, but God is actually keeping and guarding us at the same time. We're kept through faith. That's what Peter writes. We are kept through faith. Ironically, the same faith that quite often brings about alienation in this world is what keeps us. Ed Clowney wrote, Our faith is His way of keeping us. It is His gift. Why does God use faith as the instrument of His keeping power? Because faith is not our achievement, but trust in God's achievement. Your faith and hope are in God. Because we look to Him. That's how we're kept, is we continue to look to Him, and we are kept for that salvation. And I love the phrase that he says, ready to be revealed at the last time. Our inheritance will be revealed fully and finally on the last day. But do you hear the language? He says it's ready right now. 
it's ready. It, your, your kids aren't coming in going, when's dinner ready? Well, it'll be about 20 minutes, and then it takes 40, and then it may be 50 because things just don't work right. But it's, it's actually ready right now. That salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It's, it's ready now. There's nothing left to do. When Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished, and he rose from the grave, and he ascended into heaven. Everything is ready. We will not get there and take a ticket and be next in line, hopefully. It's ready to be revealed. God is waiting to give it to his children. The work is done. God's salvation is kept for us, perfect and complete and unchangeable. So much different than our fantasies and our ever-changing earth, earthly hopes and dreams that are just that. They are dreams. But God's salvation is a reality now ready to be revealed. So folks, what we celebrate today, it's the resurrection of Jesus. And it is through that miracle of God's mercy and grace that we have life and we have hope. So just a few thoughts to draw our, hope, our hearts more into this reality and more into this hope. I think this text sets for us front and center the very heart of God, according to His great mercy and, and all that, that He is for His people. He is merciful. It reminds me of Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the less. If he'll give his son the greatest gift ever imaginable, how will he not also care for us? The heart of God, that's hope instilling. God is for us. Rest in that truth. Turn to that truth as consistently as you can. It also tells us where our hearts and minds are to be directed in the day to day. Voss, one more time, he writes, for the Christian not to have his face set forward and upward would be an anomaly, sickliness, decadence. To have it set upward and forward is life and health and strength. The air of the world to come is the vital atmosphere which he delights to breathe and outside of which he feels depressed and languid. Breathe in the air the living hope of the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for you. For Peter, this was massively important. It was the way of sustaining the hearts of believers through suffering. It's a living hope. It's actually active in our lives. It's meant to be active because we have a living and risen Savior, whoever lives to plead for us, who works for us, who has loved us to the end and will bring us to himself. There is no greater inheritance than actually being with the Lord, with the one who loves us so deeply. And finally, because there's hope in the hope in itself because proper hope will change us. It will conform us more and more to the image of Christ. It purifies us. 
John tells us that everyone who thus hope in him, thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he himself is pure. As we hope for the true, as we gaze and meditate upon the reality of our Savior, one of the things that it will naturally work in us is, is a, a longing to grow in holiness. Because we see then the, the passing and, and the, the vapid nature of sin and the trappings of this world, the, the, those things that wage war against us and seek to dull the radiance of the inheritance that we have. And that so often point us and direct us to hope in something that's futile, that's dead. So as we continue to hope, it, it helps us see the place of the things of this earth. Folks, I hope you see the beauty of hope. The beauty of hope that the resurrection of Christ from the dead has brought. If you don't know this hope... Turn to Christ, because without Him, you are without hope in this life and in the one to come. But with Him, there is hope, a living hope, a hope of an inheritance to come. Turn to the one who showed the greatest love of all. Turn to the one who gave Himself for sinners out of mercy and love. And if you do know the one who has given you hope. Pray and, and labor to let that hope guide your hearts in the day to day. It's hard, I know it. There are so many things that distract. But pray that that living hope will guide and direct you in everything you do. You don't just attend the church called Living Hope. You belong to the one who is our living hope. Let's pray. Father, Lord, be it work in our lives and in our hearts. Guide, direct us. Shore up the hope that we have in you. If there are those who do not know you, Lord, I pray that they would come to you this morning, come to know the true hope that has been given to us according to your great mercy through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, work in us for your glory and our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen.